Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. 
Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello, you're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs, the podcast where I speak to musicians and bands about how they've made it work for them in the long run. I've got Matthew E. White on today's episode. His new album, K-Bay, is out now on Domino. And in this interview, he tells me all about the beginnings of how he became Matthew E. White as we know him as the artist today. Thanks to Matthew and Domino for allowing this to happen. And thank you for listening. East London Signature Brew have made beers with bands like Hot Chip, Sports Team, Mastodon, just to name a few. If you live in the UK and you want to order one of their flagship beers directly to your door, you can do that. Go to their website, signaturebrew.co.uk. You can place an order. And if you use the voucher code 101podcast at checkout, all capitals, you can get 10% off. Now, how about that? All right. Matthew E. White on 101 part-time jobs. Go well. Cheers. I feel like I did everything really backwards. So it's, you know, if we want to start at Space Bomb, although you can, we can go back farther than that for me too, for sure. But like I started Space Bomb as a label because I felt like the music scene in Richmond was really, um, really talented. And I had sort of seen that and kind of seen its success in sort of minor ways. Like I'd had this band called Fight the Big Bull that was a jazz ensemble. And we had done some stuff with Justin Vernon and this band Megaphon and Sharon Van Etten and had kind of, I'd done some arrangements for people. had just started to, had seen that like this, this talent pool was magnetic to folks. But for me, Fight the Big Bull was a particular group of people and was basically avant-garde jazz. So like the more we did, we were asked to do other stuff. I found that both of those things were a little limiting, both the number of people that out of respect to the band, I felt like I had to use the same people. And I also wanted Fight the Big Bull to be about experimental music. I, I that was the brand of the band and what I wanted to explore. So when we were doing broader things, it didn't really fit. So I felt like um, when I started Space Bomb, it was the idea was to broaden out both the people that I could use within Richmond because there's just an incredible music scene here, mm. and to be able to partner with musicians in a bunch of different ways. And I felt like the the vibrancy of the scene here could create an, like an economy, you know, people could come here to get their records produced or we could be the band for people. And and all of that was sort of housed under the space bomb label. And it is a record label, but it's also, you know, it sort of interfaces with people in other ways too. Um, in terms of being like a, a place people can come for production and a studio and all that kind of stuff. Um, was, was there like a, a path that was paved there in any sense? Like, was there any kind of route that, um, someone who's kind of opened your eyes to locally or well i mean i had been like like i was gonna say like if you want to go back like when i was when i first came to vcu which is the music school here in richmond there wasn't anyone like i was really excited to come to music school with jazz musicians like with a bunch of guys and i figured 
you know, I figured you go to you go to school, you start a band, and you play some shows, and you develop a fan base. That wasn't really happening at the jazz program at the time. It was a lot of guys. Uh, it was like sort of wedding gigs or restaurant gigs or playing jazz standards, which is which all all is really great. But it, there wasn't really like a compose your own music in any kind of way and and try to engage an audience with it and create an economy that way. Mm-hmm. both in sort of a band sense, but also in sort of a local scene sense. So, and in college, I started this, at the end of college, I started this thing called Patchwork Collective, which was basically a promoting organization. I didn't really know that word at the time, but I was a curator and a promoter, and I would put on these shows in sort of alternative venues, art galleries, and places like that, and curate lineups. So it was, you know, kind of like, I'd ask a student at the university to write a string quartet and we'd have like a string quartet and a dj and a very like cross genre stuff um pretty on the nose in that way but and the idea was to create an audience for experimental music and for original music and that was very much on purpose to to just create an audience just to create an audience in richmond that i could send out an email list or you know an email to and have 200 people show up at a show yeah because yeah. that didn't really exist at all in the, in the and I mean I mean that in the more experimental music uh, compositional sense like it hap- was in maybe it was that way for like indie rock bands and stuff but I wasn't I wasn't really in that scene at all so and I wasn't interested in playing that so at the time so I was very um, proactive and it was me and a couple other couple of the guys but we were very in- interested in just creating an audience. And that was sort of the only goal was just to get enough people engaged so that we could have a show and there would be a little bit of an economy. And um, we did that for a number of years and uh, did a pretty good job of creating a local scene, enough people that would come out and play a show and it would be financially viable for like the bands that were playing. And And at that point, I started a band and that was Fight the Big Bull. To, and I did that at the time then because there was already an audience. Um, so it was like, I didn't, I started it because I knew there would be an audience and all I had to do was book a show and put our names on it. And I knew there'd be 200 people there. And that, that's kind of, that kind of leverage gave me, you know, the sort of motivation to start this band. And then that band, like I said, got connected to Justin Vernon and Sharon Van Etten and Megaphon and we did stuff there. And then that kind of leveraged into Space Bomb and to just continue to dominoes. Like when Space Bomb started, you know, like I, I wasn't really, the idea wasn't for me to have a solo artist career. I'd never written any songs or anything like that, but the idea was, or sung on anything, but the idea was so like heavy handed in terms of we want to be your producer and your record label and write your arrangements and all this kind of stuff that I couldn't really find anyone to do it. So I, was like, well, I'll just do it myself. And so I wrote, I wrote songs so I could sing them so I could make a record to show off what Space Bomb could do from a production standpoint. And that's what Beginner was. Um, so like my journey to being a singer songwriter, like in terms of how people see me sometimes, like in the indie rock world, is very much connected to starting Patrick Collective when I was college, creating an audience, the audience created a band, this band, you know, kind of like morphed into this label and then the label needed an artist. And so 
I wrote songs to sing them so I could be the artist. So it was a very strange, but but really interconnected journey, I think, from, or at least I, I definitely see it that way. The dots are pretty well connected from starting Patrick Collective when I was 21 to releasing Beginner when I was 30. It makes me think how much you must have learned about, you're basically learning every role in the job. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say I feel I have a pretty unique understanding of how the industry works. You, you said it took, took a, after a few years with, was it, was it patchwork patchwork? Yeah. You yeah. saw an audience build in front of you. Was it as straightforward as, as that sounds? What, did it take a little bit longer than, I mean, do you remember how you felt about it at the time, whether it was working or not? Yeah, it was definitely working. I mean, I mean, it was, it was, you know, the, that's the nice thing about Richmond as opposed to, like New York or LA or London, maybe like you can do stuff and, and interact with the community. You can create energy and feel it. Like um, you can get people on board with stuff. So if you're, if you have energy, just as a 21 year old music student who was just full of, you know, energy and work ethic, mm. like you can, you can just pull the rabbit out of the hat. You know, I, I think from the, our very first show was covered in the local newspaper pretty well. And, and we just really beat the streets, you know, like to, to try to get people involved. We did try to do a show every two or three months. And, and uh, I mean, it, it, it was working. I mean, it's still well, like, it's really funny. Like still when I'm walking around Richmond now, I'm 39 years old. So this was almost pushing 20 years ago, which is insane. But like, like it's not, it's not uncommon for people to recognize me in Richmond as the patchwork collective guy. They'll, right. they'll like be like, Oh man, I recognize you. You're the guy that used to do patchwork collective. And they'll have no idea that I, I have done other things since then, you know, cause that's been sort of international and been more in the indie, indie rock world and not, not weirdly, not as local because I never, I never was Matthew E. White, an artist in Richmond. I still, I played like three times here or something like I, <laughs> it's not, that's not my role in this community necessarily. I didn't come up as a indie rock artist. I was, I, I sort of came up as a curator and a promoter and a arranger and jazz musician. And then beginner sort of happened. And, and that's been another thing, but locally, you know, Patrick collective was definitely very effective and it, and it, it, it was, a, it was from the downbeat. I mean, it really, the first show we, you know, kind of, but you know, when you're 21, it's like you, you just ask all your friends to come, you know, they don't have anything better to do. So it's different than trying to do something like that. Now it'd be a lot harder, but um, you know, it was like, it was a good energy and, and the scene, the scene's really strong. I mean, it, it's not just me at the time. There were a lot of people that were doing stuff. Um, Reggie Pace and the, had this band has still has this band, no BS brass band. He went on to play with Bonnie bear and there's just a, a lot of stuff going on. Um, you know, that went on to blossom and become bigger. But I mean, the scene was really, there was a lot of, you know, just unresolved energy there that was ready to be released. I just happened to be around for that. Did you know at the time that it was, it was special? Um, no, not, not necessarily. Only that, I mean, I still feel this way. Only that the, the level of musicianship is really, really powerful you know and 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 i felt that way at the time i moved to richmond to be a part of that like that's the reason i came to richmond is there there was a particular guy brian jones who's a drummer and and released a lot of kind of like underground jazz stuff 
who I had been a fan of and was aware of. And, and I mean, I came here to be closer to him. And so I knew that there was stuff going on. I didn't quite, you know, I mean, I was young, so it's like, you don't know how that's going to manifest. I, I, I was sort of thinking a little bit more eight bit back then. I didn't really get, get how it all worked, but, but yeah, I, I knew it was special. And, and still to this day, I mean, I, I think I could put together a band in Richmond and do for people's productions and for my records that, that is better than any band on the planet. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in situations where I've been on like late night TV or, or other things like that, where I've been really, uh, I don't know quite the polite way to say this, but like people have been excited for me to be a part of a musical ensemble. Like, yeah, fuck yeah. And, 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 you know, kind of be like, I don't mean me as a musician. I mean like me as a singer, they're going to like, you're going to love this band. You're so lucky to get to play with this band. Like, you know, like you're, you're going to love playing with these guys and I'll sit down and play with them. And I'll be like, this is a, this is a fucking dumpster fire compared to what I'm used to playing with. And they're they're like well-known ensembles whose names I won't reveal here, but people would know who they were. And they're, they're nothing compared to the, the scene here and, and, and who, who I have a, you know, I mean, I hire them now because I have the, you know, the really good fortune of being able to, you know, people trust me with their productions at times and their records to make, but I'm just a small part of the gear works. Yeah. I'm from a, you know, I guess more of the indie rock thing, but more, you know, punk rock. I've had so many conversations in the last 10, 15 years about, you know, when, when you're an artist, you know, how, how much do you push yourself? How much do you tell people that you back yourself, that you're good at what you do? You know, cause to a certain, to a certain level, do you have to, do you have to do that to push your career forward? Well, it's, that's a, it's so complicated now. I feel like it's a lot different than it, than it used to be in some ways. I mean, because a lot of the ways that you express that now are through social media. And for me, it would be difficult. It's, it is difficult to, to be, uh, express a really outward self-confidence on social media, the way that I might express in other ways. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, it does. But, Cause I, I think you got, in real life you mean <laughs> yeah well i mean I, I i would say i'm really 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 confident in in what i do i don't lack uh i mean you know we're all artists so we're we're all have extreme extreme bouts of self-doubt but but in general but in general you know like like i'm pretty confident in what i do and i feel strongly about it and i can advocate for myself really really strongly in certain situations but i find that difficult to do publicly on social media like in a meeting or some if you know I wanted somebody to give me money to start a record label for instance <laughs> like that that I can be very very confident about you know sort of behind closed doors and 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 be aggressively confident you know but on social media it's a, it's a different thing I've I've sort of a little bit more I don't know old school in the sense that like I I would prefer other people to speak you know sort of it's not my prerogative to tell people how good what I make is or how good I think it is, but that doesn't mean I'm not confident in what I do. I just think, I think social media throws a a funny wrench in that um, because I don't know, it's just, you're your own voice in a way. And that's to, to your fans or to, or to your listeners or to the public. And 
that's odd. I, I, I have a hard time with that, but, but in the broader sense of like advocating for myself and betting on myself, I mean, I was just remembering a time at the very, when beginner first came out and I was about to go on tour and I was looking for a microphone, a particular microphone to, that would help stage performance a little bit just because of how I sing on stage. And I'm, it was like 200 bucks or 150 bucks or something like that. And I remember that my management bought it for me because I had like $20 in my account when Big Inner came out. And like, in terms of actually betting on myself in, in real financial terms, like that, I have done that over and over and over again. And that, like, I'm very confident in that. You know what I mean? I've always done that. I've always been like, okay, yeah, whatever that bet is, I'll take it, you know? Um, and that's been a little bit hairy at times, but, in, in, but I was just, I was just thinking about it because this happened the other day because I pulled that mic out for a show and I was like, man, I remember when this mic was like such a to do because I didn't have like a hundred bucks. Yeah. And yeah, it was so wild. I mean, making your first record, I mean, I, I wonder if people listening to this and, and, you know, everyone making a first record, whether it's, for me, it was 900 pounds making that record. And it was like, fucking, whoa. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, with Space Mom, it was like someone had, I had convinced a friend, basically I convinced the lawyer friend to give us money to start a record label. And then I went and spent that money to make my own record, which is so (laughs) alarmingly egotistical. When I look back on it, it's like, not only it was like, can you give me money to start this label that I'm going to, you know, who invests in a label? That's a horrible idea. Like broadly speaking. (laughs) And, but then I'm going to spend this money, not on anyone who's known, but on myself to like make this record. No one's ever heard of me. I don't have, I don't have any cachet in any industry at all. And, but I think I can do something unique, you know? And, and like, when I look back on those kind of decisions, it's like, oh my God, what an, what an <laughs> asshole. But I wonder if same- that confidence is infectious. Cause you know, we all know what it's like to be next to someone, a friend or whatever. And you know, they're confident in getting in, you know, blagging into the festival, getting into the, yeah. you know, getting, and then you yeah. join in with it and you realize that it's real if you want it to be. Yeah, I think so. I think it's like, it's, it's like, um, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit. I, I, th- I always think about, uh, this is changing the subject a little bit, but I think I think um, <laughs> when I think about things like that, I always think about Keith Richards' guitar solos because I think <laughs> they're kind of shitty, except that he believes in them so much that they become, they sort of somehow turn into amazing guitar solos just because he has so much self-confidence in what he's doing. <laughs> but there's no real reason that they should be good guitar solos. So the Peter Buck, anti-guitar solo yeah 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 exactly the music industry seems a lot bigger than it was 20 years ago i don't know if that i'm I, you know i don't know if that's just because of the genre that, you know that i care about and i'm aware of but it, it just seems like everyone like everyone plays music <laughs> you know what i mean like everyone yeah. starts bands yeah i don't know it's hard. i'm so if- i'm so insulated richmond's so insulated it's hard for me to and, and in general, like I'm, I feel like I'm pretty siloed, so it's it's hard for me to know 
and like I didn't grow like I said like I didn't know I didn't really grow up with any kind of understanding of the industry as we know it now I mean or or even like labels or anything like when when I got asked to play Glastonbury after Beginner came out I I had no idea what that was none and I had to call my manager called me he was really excited and I was like I don't know what that is you're gonna have to explain that to me because I don't know what it is. And there, there, I mean, I have a hundred of those stories of just not, I don't know anything about what we think, you know, like the, and broadly speaking, the independent music industry, um, labels that exist in that sphere or anything like that. So, you know, I don't know. Hard for me to comment. I, I often wonder, um, you know, when, when you are really aware of your surroundings, when you are aware of people, of everything that's going on other bands that you may or, or pe- that people think you may or may not sound like and other festivals that, that would have you play um i wonder if there's like a a massive well to me it's clear that there is a strength in that because then because you, then you're not kind of leaning towards anything that you think you should be doing yeah i mean i think so i, I mean i think that's was primary really a, a primary point in beginner success is that was made really in a on an island man i mean really truly and i've kind of tried to keep it that way a little bit obviously i i know a little bit more now but but um you know i, I think it's helpful but the, uh, but it can go the other way too i mean it's interesting like um i don't know it's, there's obviously some people that are really aware of of the industry and kind of can see the angles and see which buttons to push you know that's that's really like uh that's a skill you know uh, and and something I, I can be jealous of you know like folks that can connect a to b to c to d in musical and non-musical ways and just see the ecosystem a little bit in, mm-hmm. in from in a cultural way like that's that can be really powerful you know and i think your art can benefit from that too um and vice versa it's just you know a lot of different ways to make it work. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in Bigger Than Ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. For the uh, for the namesake of the podcast, and as you might have guessed, I kind of use the, the, the subject matter of, you know, people's part-time jobs. I use that as a kind of jumping off point to, to ask the questions that I really want to ask. Sure. But, I mean, you know, when speaking about jobs... You know, either either recently or or when you were much younger. I mean, do any do any sort of sideline hustles stand out for you? Yeah, I mean, I had I worked in like restaurants and stuff like until I was eighteen, and when I was eighteen, I started teaching guitar lessons, and I taught guitar guitar and piano lessons from the time I was eighteen till I mean till I was thirty when Beginner came out. That was all I did and taught tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of kids how to or tried to teach them how to play guitar and piano and did you get pretty like did you get pretty 
profound at your own playing like whilst doing that? Uh, no, no, I don't think that improves your playing at all. I mean, I'm as good. I was good when I started doing it. I was good enough to start doing it and I got better in college because that's what I studied. But I don't think that I got any better from teaching lessons. I mean, sort of you're just holding guitar every day. So that's helpful. But um, no, I, w- I wouldn't draw any kind of correlation between those two. <laughs> um, yeah, I taught tons of kids guitar. That's what I did. I mean, it was it's like relatively well paying, was super flexible. Um. And, you know, it was sort of part time, like the kids can only teach, you know, learn when they're out of, when out of school. So I could teach from 2.30 to 8, basically. But I was, I was hustling, man. I mean, I taught 2.30 to 8 with 30 minute lessons, which is uh, like. That's a lot. Yeah, it's like 12 lessons. What is it? 2.30 to 3 is 1. 3 to 8 is 10. So 11 lessons a day for five days a week. So 55 lessons a week for years the admin on that well for a while i did it for a while i did it um out of like another you know like through a a ymca actually here and then i bailed and did it privately because i could charge basically double and um just went to people's houses Mm -hmm. and that was really a dream because i mean yeah the admin is intense but but that's a strong suit of mine so it was it was just so flexible. I mean, I, I, like, I, like, I think the, the amount of times that I worked a full week and didn't cancel somebody somewhere to like go to a gig or like do a band practice or so. I mean, I was canceling. You could call up these families. It's like I was canceling all the time, but I always kept track of who I canceled to so that I would try not to cancel the same person two weeks in a row or like a month in a row because they paid it a month at a time. So it was like, and I kept track of like makeup. So I'd always have like a day where I like a, a pre-scheduled day where I would do all my makeup lessons. And it was just, it was just so nice to like have something that I knew could pay the bills and, and, and plus a little bit to like kind of invest in the career. And, and also like I, I went to work at two thirty, So it was like every day I always felt like coming out of college, it was like, if I wanted to be a professional musician, I should be working like 50 hours a week yeah. because that's what people that, you know, 50, 60 hours a week, that's what people who are grinding are working. Yeah, yeah. And my teaching job was, you know, whatever that was 20 or 25 hours of that. So I was pretty aggressive about keep making sure that I was working on something like, just finding things for me to do to try to put energy into a career and move, move that ball along, Mm. you know, for 20, 20 hours a week. And I had the mornings to do that. And just, I don't know some of the stuff I did was stupid and made no sense, but some of it really mattered. I wonder if that discipline is like reflected, you know, it it pushes, you know, I mean, you kind of just said push the ball along, but I wonder if doing, you know, being organized and doing those 11 lessons a day, you know, made you, take writing even more seriously maybe than you yeah yeah maybe i mean i, I was it's funny I mean, it's so odd for me to think back about that time because i like i think about it sometimes from my parents point of view and it's like there was nothing to indicate really that anything was going to happen other than that i was going to teach guitar lessons in people's homes for the rest of my life which 
is cool, but I look at it now being almost 40 and it's like, man, what was I, what, what did I think was going to happen? Like definitely what, what actually happened, I didn't think was going to happen. So I don't, so I don't know what I thought was going to happen, but it was just sort of a blind, like, wasn't really thinking that far down the line. It was just like, I know I have to put in the work. So just whatever it was like patchwork and fight the big bull and all that stuff where that's what I was focusing on. So just getting people to shows like writing arrangements for the band, make doing band practices, trying to get us better shows, like get us booking agents and managers and all that kind of stuff. And, um, so what was the series of events that did actually, that did end up happening? Well, it was when I started fight the big, bull. I mean, the, the, I started fight the big bull and, um, I mean, you could start the story a couple different places, but I, I, there was this guy named Steven Bernstein. Who's a trumpet player. He'd be good for this podcast. Actually. He's a trumpet player in New York. Um, he's older. He's probably mid fifties or 60 now. Um, played with like everybody, Aretha, Lou Reed, just, just like John Zorn, very, very like 1980s downtown jazz, John Zorn scene, like Tom Waits kind of vibe. Uh, he's a, he's amazing, but he's kind of like self-taught. He's sort of like a punk rock version of that thing. Like he didn't go to music school. He's ama- just amazing. And I, I was a huge fan of his and I tracked him down kind of like I just had his rep. I mean, silly now because it wasn't that big a deal, but it felt like a huge deal. I, I had a CD and I emailed the record label on the CD and I said, I want to, I want to talk to Stephen Bernstein. Can you give me his number? And they said, well, I'll just, and they just like uh, connected me on email. You know, they just forwarded my email to him and were like, here's Steven. Brilliant. And I was like, holy shit. And then Steven was just, I, just, I could go back and look at the email now. Most influential email of my entire life. He, he wrote, call me and put his number down and called him out of the blue. I was probably like 22 or 23. And I was like, cause at the time I sort of like saw myself as an arranger and, um, like a jazz arranger. And I was like, Hey, I want to come up and study with you or just talk with you or just talk with you about music, you know, kind of have a lesson like in that sort of traditional way. And he was like, okay, great, let's do it. You know? And, and I was sort of shocked at that. I didn't really think that he would be so approachable. And I told him that I, w- that I was going to be in New York for like months. I was like, I was like, I'm be in New York for like the next three months anyway. So like, just tell me any day that you're available. And he's like, okay, well, why don't you just come next over next Tuesday? So this is like where the teaching thing was really helpful. So I obviously wasn't going to be in New York for a few months. I lived in Richmond, but he didn't know that. So he just like gave me a time to come over. And I just drove up to his house that day. Like it was like 11 o'clock. So I had to leave at like five o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning or something to get there. So I just like drove up to his house and we had a lesson, a quote unquote lesson. Really, it was just him playing music for me and talking about it, which was by far, not exaggerating, the most influential day musically of my entire life. It absolutely reshaped my understanding of music completely. And he, we really hit it off, you know. And I think, I think he was, you know, kind of was grateful a little bit that I that I had, re- found, you know, kind of reached out to him and had found him and appreciated his music. Um, mm-hmm. He's kind of in, he's in New York. So he's in a scene of like jazz and arranging giants. And for a young kid to be like, Hey, out of all these people, like I'm, I want you, I want you to talk to me. I think, I think he appreciated that. 
so we continued this relationship for years. I, mean, I still talk to him now. Like I'll call him every once in a while. But early in that, I played him a demo, a fight the big bull demo. And he was like, he's like, Hey man, th- this is, re- this is really good. He's like, I'm not bullshitting you. This is good. This is really good. Like, this isn't like other stuff that I hear. You should try to get a record deal. And I was kind of like, it was a demo. It, uh, it weirdly has incredibly, um, it's like the exact same thing as beginner. And it, it, like, it's funny. It's like all, all these like breakthroughs are like when I didn't intend to do it, which is sort of annoying, but, um, but, but uh, it was a demo. He was like, you should try to get a record deal. And so I did, I like emailed around all these jazz labels and this label in Portugal called clean feed records wanted to release it. And Steven said, he gave me, he just gave me one advice. It's funny. Cause looking back, Steven's not like the greatest business guy. I mean, he's not, you know, he's a session musician. He's not really in the industry, but he, he was like, he gave me this advice, which I thought was really good. And turned out to be very helpful is he's like, don't ever release a record without hiring a publicist. So clean feed was going to release it, but there was like a small jazz label. So I didn't, they didn't really have a budget for, they said they did publicity, like small labels say all the time, but, but they don't mean in-house. Yeah. It's like in-house mail, mail out or whatever. I was like, I'm going to hire another publicist. Like, I don't care. Like, so I, there's this guy, Kevin Calabro in New York that Steven recommended. And I just, I basically bullied him into doing publicity. Like I like, how did this guy like crazy? I mean, just crazy to think about it now, how much I like, he couldn't have not done publicity for this record. I was so annoying. (laughs) And he did publicity for the record and it got on this NPR show. National Public Radio in the U.S. on the show called Fresh Air, which is like a a giant show. It's one of the biggest NPR shows, and they they only re- they review one record at the end of every show. And he reviewed um, this record, "Dying Will Be Easy" by Fight the Big Bull, and he was super kind yes. about it. It was crazy. It was like it was I was like twenty four, and it was like the biggest show in the U.S. Did a jazz review of this demo that I made, and he just was like over the moon about it. And I, I could not, I remember listening to it live and I was like crying because I couldn't, I, I was like, holy shit. Like I might do this, you know, like maybe I can actually do this. And that anyway, I got a call. There was another singer songwriter that heard that on NPR. He wanted me to write arrangements for him. So I wrote arrangements for him and that kind of snowballed into this Justin Vernon, Sharon Van Etten, Megaphone thing where Fight the Big Bull began to be like people's backing band for stuff because we were like a rhythm section plus horn. So like I would do the arrangements and we'd be the rhythm section and then, you know, folks would play out in front of us. And when we did that thing, that Justin Vernon thing, like that was the first like connection with like the industry because it was like he had just started, he had just done Bonnie Bear and it was like, okay, huge. this is going, you know, he was yeah. he had gone from like nobody to being like the zeitgeist of the times yeah. you know in like yeah. 6 months yeah. and um you know that just started to connect the dots a little bit and and space bomb just grew out of that fight the big bull being a backing band it was like well i don't want fight the big bull to be the backing band for everybody cuz like i said earlier like that limits me in terms of personnel and sound mm-hmm. And I just been and through because I've been talking with, I've been talking with Steven a lot about history of American music and regional music and southern 
labels and and just kind of getting really into getting back into soul music and and really pop music in general like steven i was like a jazz nerd and and steven really redirected that in a way to like understanding arranging as producing and producing as arranging and making records as composition and you know i remember when we were talking about arranging and the first record he pulls out is like the white album and he's like this is this is brilliant arranging and yeah i wasn't really expecting that you know i was coming from a university type something a bit more esoteric under yeah yeah and 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 that you know and then my heroes went from being sort of like the duke ellingtons of the world to like the tio maceros of the world producer for miles davis and and who did a lot of like tape splicing and that kind of studio stuff to like like the Phil Spector's and Brian Wilson's of the world, you know, and like that sort of archetypical like producer as composer as studio as you know like instrument and and that kind of gave birth to the space bomb idea that was all and and then from there like I just made beginner and that that connect I mean that connected with people but but that connected with people in a way that I wasn't really expecting. I was expecting that to be something that I could hand to other artists and say, look, like, this is kind of how it works. Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, Mm -hmm. we we made that record so quick. We made it in seven days. It's just like, this is how it works. You just lay down the rhythm section tracks, you lay down the arrangements and then you sing over it. And like, bam, 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 you got a record. And like, that was exciting to me. That kind of sort of blue collar way of making a record and, and the immediacy of it. Yeah. And it's just like, here it is, you know, it's a lot of trust and that kind of thing. But, um, that's but, a great story. I don't know. So it, it just, a lot of it comes down to Steven. A lot of it's luck. A lot of it's just sort of, you just roll the dice over and over and over and over again. It's like playing shows, meeting people, yeah, being active, yeah. creating energy. I mean, that's what I say. Anyone who asks me about, you know, people ask me all the time. It's like, what, how do I do it? You know, especially like all these kids, like I taught, you know I was saying? I taught thousands of kids and like, those a lot of those kids are, you know, I taught them when they were like in first grade and stuff. So now they're like, probably like a few times a year, I get calls from these kids that are like, "Hey, man, remember you used to teach me? You know, like, can I ask you about? Oh, I have a band. I, you know, like, what what can you tell me?" And and I think for me, the really only advice that I can give that's like consistent across time because it, the world's just so much different now than it was when I was really like coming up is just just creating energy, like create, like whatever it is, like now a lot of that is on social media, but it's like playing live shows, meeting people, like putting your name in front of people, just, just emailing people. Yeah. Email. I mean, God, I emailed, I'm, yeah, oh my, I was a, like I said, with this guy, Kevin Calabro, this, this publicist emailed <laughs> that guy just, just until he said, no, that was my whole, that was my whole thing. It was like, I would force people to say no. It was like, nobody is going to get away with not answering my email. If I want, if I'm asking them something, I, they have to say, I will, all they have to do is say no and I'll be super polite and leave them alone. But unless they say no, I'm going to email them every week and they're just going to get an email same time every week. That's like, Hey, just following up. Like, and you know, what? if they are a good PR person, then they know once a week is nothing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. 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 But I had a bunch of people like that, you know, that it was just like, just really brutally uh, annoying them to pay attention to what I was doing, um, which is really? funny because I don't I don't really have that same spirit right now. I don't I don't think, but you know, time and place for everything. 
Great. Well, I, I love that. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. I'm, I'm a bit of that myself. Yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you got to. You have to. You have to. Because especially now where people can really duck you so easily. It's like, it's like you just got to make people say no. All they have to do is say no and you just leave them alone. People want it, you know, it's so easy for people to duck with emailing and such these days. Well, Matt, I mean, thanks so much. Thank you so much for those stories. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Happy. To, happy I live to. for that shit. Yeah, you know? man. It's it's a wild world. Everyone gets gets there a different way. It's impossible to replicate anyone's journey, you know. I'm sure you hear it all the time. But everyone's story is so different when you get down to it. And everyone's so valid, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm so excited to see you next March. Yeah, man. I can't wait. I cannot wait. I... I I can't wait to play. It's just obviously been a desert out there. Um, and really looking forward to getting back on stage. Hell yeah. Well, thank you so much for being up for this. I yeah. mean, you know, I can't, can't over say it. I'm a big fan. It's, it's fucking cool. Um, Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. So there was Matthew E. White on 101 part-time jobs. Cheers for tuning in. Be back next week. Here's Cox Sparrow. I've been working all day for me mate on the side Running around like a blue ass fly I've been working, yeah I've been working all day for me mate Every blinking minute I've been on the This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast.